The Fourth Wall, Episode 11, DJ Stipson and Brendan Taylor. You are listening to The Fourth Wall, a podcast that takes you beyond the screen or the page and brings you into our conversations with the creative people behind your favorite movies, TV shows, comics, and more. My name is Michael R. I'm the podcast editor here at Den of Geek, and today we're talking to DJ Stipson and Brendan Taylor. DJ is the cinematographer of What We Do in the Shadows, the original movie version and the new television version on FX. And Brendan Taylor is the visual effects supervisor for the TV show. And boy, did these guys have a bunch of great stories and behind the scenes descriptions of what it is that a cinematographer and a visual effects supervisor do, especially on a show as unique as what we do in the shadows, which is a half hour comedy, a single camera comedy that has a surprising number of visual effects. So let's go ahead and listen to the interview we had with DJ Stipson and Brendan Taylor just before the finale of season one of what we do in the shadows, which has already been renewed for season two on FX. Okay. We're here with cinematographer DJ Stipson and visual effects supervisor, Brendan Taylor from the FX uh, vampire comedy. I guess I could call it what we do in the shadows. Welcome gentlemen. Hello. I have to uh, start with DJ and ask because you were involved in the original movie, how has this experience differed from the New Zealand production? And are there other people besides Taika Watiti and Jemaine Clement who were involved in the first iteration and this one as well? Uh, yes, there was. Um, the, the costume designer, Amanda Neal, came over to Toronto to shoot the series. And she had also, uh, was also a costume designer on the film. And she was also a costume designer on a spin-off of the film that we shot in New Zealand called Wellington Paranormal. I don't know if you remember in the film, there were two cops that turned up to check out a bit of a ruckus at the house and they were hypnotized by um, Viago and taken around the house and were seeing the most horrific things. But of course, because they were, uh, or glamoured, sorry, it's a, when it's a vampire, uh, <laughs> because they were glamoured, they, they didn't see anything and walked back out again. Um, they were so popular that uh, Jermaine was convinced to write a spin-off series. And in fact, they, the actors were so good. Um, so Amanda was costume designer on that spin-off series and also the designer of the um, film, Ra Vincent, was also the designer on that spin-off series and designed the pilot of what we do in the shadows but wasn't available to do the, once it got picked up the rest of the series. So his art director, Kate Bunch, uh, stepped in and did episodes 2 to 10 for the, uh, the TV series. And has it been quite different doing this uh, TV production? I imagine it must be. <laughs> Yeah, well, for a start, there was a lot more money compared to the film, so we could do we could do more cool things, which was really really good. Tyker and Jermaine acted and directed and wrote the film. So, firstly, on on the floor, you you had two blokes acting uh, and and trying to direct and trying to keep a handle on on other actors' performance at the same time. So it was it was really it was a great experience in the sense of being very very inclusive. Um, they would often refer to me and the other operator. Uh, you know, was that okay? Did you get that? Do you think we need this shot? So it was it was really quite fun from that angle. The other difference, in fact, Jermaine said to me on the phone when he phoned me up about working on the series. 
he said, um, he said, oh, oh mate, mate, don't don't worry, it's not going to be nearly as anarchic as the film. And I was like, oh, thank goodness for that. I don't know if I could do that again. The, fi- the, fi- the film had a script which was merely a uh, an outline of how the story may progress, and we shot the film chronologically. And we went back, I think probably about three months later, and did a week's worth of pickups. Um, once they kind of got the edit in, in a reasonable order and worked out what they really needed needed to polish it. But the the script was merely a guideline, and they were very clever because they embraced the mockumentary style completely and utterly by making that a guideline. Um, and the other thing they did is they wouldn't let anybody, apart from the shooting crew, see the script. So no actor who was in that movie, apart from Tyker and Jermaine, had seen the script. So they had to react to the performance that Tyker and Jermaine were giving them to work out what was going on. They, I mean, as we kept shooting, everybody got a fairly good handle on the storyline, and the characters were well-rounded anyway. And I know that Tyker and Jermaine were talking to them about their characters, but they didn't want to have scripted dialogue to us per se. But long story short... The big difference really was we had a lot more money so we could do a heap more tricks, which was great, and gags. And we had a script and we would follow the script for the first couple of takes and then we would start the improvisation after that. And now, Brendan, obviously you got involved after this. Were you familiar with the movie before joining the TV series? Yeah, absolutely. I had um, I was in Wellington when the movie exploded in New Zealand. I did get to see it then, but I saw it as soon as I got back. And uh, as soon as I heard that it was happening, I campaigned very, very heavily to get it. <laughs> we had done, I'd done, we had done a comedy series with FX called uh, Man Seeking Woman. And it, it was the same kind of thing, like lots of effects for a half hour comedy. Um, so I think we were really well positioned to do it. So we put together a reel of all of our best comedy stuff. Yeah, that's got to be pretty unusual visual effects for a, for a comedy. <laughs> yeah, it is. And, you know, the, the funny thing is, is, is 90% of the time, you don't want to try and be funny. 90% of the time, the joke is about the situation being as real and feeling as real as possible. And you're not trying to make a joke. You're trying to let the story and the, and the actors tell the joke. Now, let's talk cinematography for a minute, because I'm no expert. But DJ, if I had to pick a signature look that I specifically had my eyes peeled for, having seen the movie when I went to watch what we do in the shadows on FX, it's the single point lighting of the tour around the house that everyone lives in. Are you trying to purposely give the show that one point lighting of an old school documentary or is it less present in the TV show than it was in the movie because of it being a single camera comedy? I, I think it's it's less so in the series because we had more resources so I could light the house set and all the other guest sets quite differently from how we had to go about it for the for the house in Wellington. But the premise behind the documentary light on top of the camera was really I mean no real documentary does that anymore. That's <laughs> yeah. that's you know, I mean maybe a cop show, you know, if you're chasing after some cops and some crims, uh, you know, at night you're, you're going to put that on to have a look. But but those days are kind of gone. But but people still react to that. So so it was really important that we had that going to remind the audience that this was observational, to, to make sure that 
the audience never forgot that it wasn't drama. We almost wanted to get them to a point where they accepted what was happening in front of them as true reality. And I know that's kind of a, a long stretch, but really if they are engaging with it and they're reminded occasionally by having this light on top of the camera that there's a crew there who are referred to quite a lot but never seen, mm-hmm. it, it, I think it just helps bring that, make that world a little bit more realistic. I mean, you know, an, ex, an example of that not happening very often was in The Office, the, the, the British series. I, pardon me, I haven't seen the American series, but the British series, The Office, they didn't really go in for that. But the the style that they shot still made you believe that you were watching a, a reality show or a, or a documentary um, or an observational documentary at least, you know. And I certainly took heart from the British Office series and went, well, if they can do it, you know, we, we, we had to keep going like that. And the light was one of the tools to, to try and help sell it. The other tool was trying to remind the operators to get just a couple of frames or beats late to something that was happening so that they were reacting, not preempting, because they knew it was going to happen. But and, and normally in drama, you know, if you did that, you'd probably be sacked within about an hour. So you, you, you really had to throw out all, all your learning and go, no, I have to pretend that I'm 20 years old, I've never <laughs> operated a camera before, and this is my first gig. And, and if you kind of went in with that premise, you can, you know, you, you can react to things better. And and the two operators did an amazing job in actually doing that. So that, that were the two big tools to try and bring the audience in and, and keep the mockumentary feel going. And now, Brendan, you've taken the special effects to a whole new level from the movie. But did you also seek to evoke the look of the original movie as well, in a sense? Yeah, absolutely. There was no... Um no point in reinventing the wheel. Um, I thought that the movie did a great job, especially with the transitions from bat to vampire and vampire to bat. We just, Jermaine was just like, make it look like that. It's, it's great the way it is. So, but that was the only, really the only effect. Um, oh, and the, the werewolf eyes as well, that we could actually draw inspiration from that from the film because everything was so new in the TV series. It was a new gamut of stuff to do. Yeah, well, that's definitely one of the more subtle things. You you almost don't want to notice it. That's how you know you did it right. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. And that, that's how you know the joke's going to sell. Is if you if if the audience doesn't know that it's an effect and just believe, like like DJ was saying, believe that what they're seeing is real, or at least get into the mindset that what they're seeing is real. If the effects start to stick out and you start to realize that they're effects, I don't think it, we've done our job, and I don't think the joke lands. Now, one of the other things that sort of establishes the atmosphere is uh, the saturation of the the colors, because the show is quite colorful in its own way, but you also have to keep things dark. So, DJ, what are some of the things you do as director of photography to make the house and its surroundings look more ancient? And are there challenges to not being able to use sunlight, except with Colin Robinson's scenes, of course? Uh, It is it is unique, I've got to say, and uh, if I hadn't done the film, I probably would have been quietly freaking out the entire show. Um, you were quietly freaking out. <laughs> yeah, I just I didn't show it. It was my stony exterior. That, um, uh, it, 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 I learned so much on the film how to go about allowing almost 100% freedom for the actors and allowing the camera to go anywhere it wanted in the set. But keeping it 
oldie worldy looking and dark. And, you know, as Jermaine said to me a couple of times, he's like, look, mate, I know we've got to keep it dark, but it is a comedy. I'd kind of like to see their eyes. So, so there's a really fine line to, to walk because, you, you know, performance is in the expressions as well. So based off the experience on the film, uh, and Ra, Vincent and I happened to be working on Burlington Paranormal at the time that he was prepping uh, the show, so the pilot in L.A. So we had a few conversations, although I wasn't shooting the pilot, we had a few conversations based off he wanted feedback from me about the, the house and the film. And what we could chat, you know, what, what would you change if you could and all those kinds of things. And the, the biggest thing was all the ceiling pieces in the house have to come out because you've got stunt wire work happening in the house quite often. And that's really tricky. I, I'm not a big fan of using top light through ceiling pieces, but when you the camera can go anywhere at once following the actors, you kind of need a get out of jail free card. And that is generally very subtle top light. I didn't have that in the film. I didn't have, we couldn't afford to ceiling the entire set. So we had shoot off issues, you know, as soon as the camera went low, you'd be shooting off the top of the walls. And we had a few issues like that in the film. And I didn't want to have that in the series. So the whole house had ceiling pieces, which were basically stretched canvas over wooden frames, that very light and could be removed uh, very quickly from the set. And they were, you know, the panels were, I don't know, 1200 by 2.4 or something like that. And, um, I would push light through there if I really had to. The other tricks that I learned was um, we got lots and lots and lots of little LED strips that were battery powered with very small battery packs. And we would tape them to the backs of chairs, the sides of tables. I built, uh, I got the, I, I built a prototype in New Zealand that I didn't bring to Canada. So I got the rigging gaffer to build me a, what's essentially a, a box frame. So just aluminium framing in a cube. And we put the uh, calico unbleached, muslin on the sides in panels that you could take off it's kind of i hope i'm doing the description service it's like a a cube that has independent cloth panels that are velcro to it so now the cube has a skin and you can take those off independently and then on top of that you could put black panels that cut the light so you could shape the light very quickly but also you could hide them we made really really small ones and really really big ones so you could put them under a table you could have uh, a lighting technician carry one on a fish pole and walk with the actors and and they were so soft you couldn't see where the source came from the third thing in the arsenal was um practicals and candles so we wanted the house to feel old and candles and flickering practicals were the things that were going to bring that to the house and and i mean in some shots i've got to say i, I felt like i'd over put too many practicals in the frame but we kind of needed it to enable two cameras to shoot anything they wanted in any room. It was sometimes up to, I mean, I think in the werewolf scene, we had 12 actors on the floor in one room. So that's that's really tricky if you, you're going from wide shot to close up on a zoom. So you have to light everything. So it, it still was a big learning process, but it was enjoyable because it was so challenging. And sometimes I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. Like I just stood there <laughs> going, I don't know how I'm going to do this. But it was great. I loved it because that was such a challenge. And of course, the design. The, the house was so beautifully designed and set decorated. That helped us create that old world feel. And one other point, Michael, that I, I should make is that Jermaine and I spoke a lot about the vampires had to love that house and love living in it. And they had to feel really uncomfortable when they went outside. The, the outside world had to be baffling to them. They knew the house intimately. That was all great. But as soon as they went out, and I think that's evident in the Staten Island Council episode, you know, they get on a fluorolip bus, it's pretty ugly. They go to a council chamber, it's pretty ugly. But they're also 
constantly bamboozled by bureaucracy and why do people do stupid things that they're doing? And the only people that know why they're doing it is Colin Robertson and Guillermo. So they're our guides to the outside world. So visually, we were always hunting for the ugliest locations to try and bring a bright, fluorescent, lit feel so that the house really stood out in the episodes as opposed to, you know, so it stood out against the locations. Yeah, oh, I think that was successful in that respect. And, uh, yeah, the fluorescent lighting of the office, Colin Robbins' office or the city council was definitely a contrast for sure. Yeah. Now, Brendan, um, you, we mentioned the bat transformation, and I love that they actually say the word bat. That's got to be a pretty mm-hmm. good uh, <laughs> cue for you in editing to work around their mouth movements to start the effect. But tell us what goes into smoothing out the transition when the actor leaps into the air, and then how much of what we see as the bat is real. Okay, so it's funny because I asked Jermaine how they did it, um, how, how, how they did the back transformation in the movie, and he, he, he just sort of looked up and he said, we just jump in the air and you take over? I was like, okay. Um, but the bat thing was something that I think Matt Berry had come up with. And he's the only one. So Laszlo's the only one that says bat. Everyone can just do it. Except, funny that you mentioned it, not every time. Because where, where we would take over is at the apex of the jump, right? right. When they, they stop going up and start coming down, that's when we do it. But the bat never really, he never said bat at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll see somewhere he says it way before, somewhere he says it right on, and some actually where he says it's late. And he's, uh, he's already turning into a bat when you hear the word bat. But it, um, what we would do there is, it was myself and, and Ryan McNamara, who was the, uh, the onset supervisor for it. In the simplest of cases, we would just lock the camera off, have them all jump up in the air, and then shoot a clean plate so that we can erase them out of it. Um, in the more difficult cases, they would be moving, and we would just try and do a clean plate, but of course, it's not never going to line up if the camera's moving. And then we would bring in a, we do what's called an HDRI, which takes all of the all of DJ's lighting information at a bunch of stops. And then, uh, and then we bring. We had a little bat on a fishing pole that we would just put through the scene, just just for reference for the artists when they get back there. Yeah, and to, to avoid getting too technical, we we created a, a particle simulation because right when they transform, there's a poof of particles. That was a particle simulation in a program called Houdini that we would then put in. And then all the bats that you see in the show are completely digital animated bats. Okay, but you did have a fishing pole. For reference, I, I, I'm glad you uh, added that little bit of detail because it seemed like there must be something like that too. Yeah, yeah, you put it's really helpful because it takes away all the guesswork. You know, there's so many times you're just sitting there looking at a shot and everybody in the room knows it's wrong. Everybody has a different opinion of why it doesn't look right. But when you have that reference, you can just say, oh, I can see there's a little bit more kick on his wings when he gets to the top or whatever the reason is. Uh, it becomes immensely helpful in the final stages of finishing a shot. Now, DJ, one of the ways that a cinematographer can make a scene look more realistic is to purposely have a shaky camera, not just for that documentary look, but to create sort of a frantic uh, chase scene or something like that. So I'm wondering, you know, obviously the director has a certain amount of say in that. So do you decide when to go for a shaky camera for that first person look, or do you help frame some of the interview sequences? What falls under your purview versus what the director does? 
It depends who the director is. Some directors are absolutely adamant about how they want to cover a scene or how the camera should be reacting, and, and others are happy to let you do it and might offer an opinion after the first take and go, actually, can we liven it up a bit more? Or can we do this or do that? And so the same was on what we do in the shadows. We had a, we had four directors with four quite different approaches to the way they directed. Some were concentrating on performance and less on camera. So in answer to your question, I operated on the film and DOP'd, and that's what I've normally done through most of my career. This was one of the first instances where I had two operators and I wasn't operating. So really, I was almost like a third wheel when it came to that. The operators were the storytellers along with the focus pullers. Those guys uh, were incredible at picking up and watching the performance or the a very loose block, listening to what Jermaine or Taika or Jackie or Jason, our directors, had to say on each of their block and then going forward with their own ideas. You know, obviously we all had opinions after the first take or or maybe not, but they, they would bring the energy to the scene that they thought were appropriate after we'd had a very brief discussion about it. But really, after that discussion, I had to leave it up to them because I wasn't physically holding the camera. The difference in the film was that I was, and so I had a, a much more on-point ability to help tell the story. Uh, I, I agree with that. I mean, when we uh, were doing these bad, bad transitions, it's, it's, it's very choreographed, even though it doesn't look it. It's like at this moment, then we tilt up to the sky with the bat. And, you know, very frequently it was the, the two uh, operators who were, who were sort of blocking it out and helping problem solve, which was, I, I mean, a testament to your crew as well. And, and, you know, everyone having, feeling they had the authority to help make story decisions like that. I thought it was awesome. Yeah, and it, and it made a happy crew, I've got to say, because they felt really involved. There wasn't the director lining up the shot and going, okay, we're going to, we're going to go from point A to point B on the dolly, and it happens at this time. It was it was really literally a conversation of like, okay, well, there's the block. What do you guys think? You want to cover it from here and here? And they go, yep. I go, okay, I'll like to that. Great. <laughs> and walk away. <laughs> and, and Brendan, you obviously have a team as well. Do you have members of the visual effects team who specialize in certain effects, or do they just get assignments as they come? Like, what's the workflow for the crew? Uh, so there's definitely a division of labor. The you know it takes a long time to learn a, a certain part of the craft. So we we have animators and effects artists, effects to water, smoke, particles, all that kind of stuff. And then we have um, the, the people who finish it off are called the compositors, and they basically make it look real. Whether it's a CG bat or whether it is um, a bunch of people in a rowboat, um, it's up to those guys too make sure everything get rid of the green screen, all that kind of stuff, make sure it all looks real and fits into the film. Uh, and on set, we had myself and Ryan most of the time. And then every once in a while, um, we'd bring a few people from, from the office, from Mavericks, just to come take a look because, you know, they spend their lives behind a computer screen and often don't really get to see what's going on. So we brought them out. I, I you know, checked with, Jermaine and, and Hartley, the producer, and just make sure that it was cool and everyone's fine with it. So it could be really fun for some people to just even be on set for an hour when it starts to get really boring. And then like, it's, do you have to do this whole day? <laughs> now, I'm going to wrap up by asking you both the same question. And DJ, we'll start with you. What is something about the cinematography of 
what we do in the shadows that you're particularly proud of that people might not have even noticed either because it was purposefully not supposed to be noticeable or you'd like to highlight it? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I, I think I'm most proud of actually achieving lighting most of the actors most of the time <laughs> um, and, and, and giving the directors the ability to frame a wide group shot and then zoom in to a close-up on someone's face as a reaction. That's incredibly hard as a cinematographer. Um, and sometimes it breaks your heart because you're, it's not perfect, but that was the skill. Was It was really complex, but it looks so simple. And I think that's what I'm most proud of, is that every day I was challenged and I, I couldn't do it the way I've been trained my entire career. I had to do it a different way. And, and I, I found that really, really exciting. Is there is one other point I'd like to make that I think we haven't covered, which is from a VFX point of view, this is an insanely complex show because for one moment we can't leave the premise that it's a mockumentary. And, and the same goes for the stunt department. So we would often set up very, very complex rigs that would require a lot of work later on by the VFX department to get rid of all the harnesses or wires or boxes they were jumping off or whatever it was. And Brendan and Mavericks, they were incredible at letting us shoot it in a documentary style. On a normal show, I think the VFX department probably would have been in tears every day. because We were. We, <laughs> yeah, they were. <laughs> because we, it was very rare we locked the camera off. Most of the time, the camera was on the shoulder of the operators. We tried not to zoom over those effects, but sometimes we were allowed, Brendan would go, no, just do it, we'll get rid of it later. And, and so he, he alone and Mavericks as a company enabled us to continue shooting in a documentary style and not have those shots handbrake the style of the show by all of a sudden the audience going, hang on, that looks weird. What's wrong with that? And that, the look weird would be that the camera was locked off and the handheld put in later, which never looks any good. So I was really, really stoked to have a team like that to work with and give us the ability to keep the style of the show moving along. And they were incredibly fast because we, our schedule was really fast. And they, were, they matched us in speed as far as the quick decision-making on set and going, yep, you can do it. Yep, no problem. Yeah, thank you for saying that. <laughs> that was one of the things that I, I was going to say. It's, it's hard for me to, to choose something that people wouldn't have known as a visual effect. My favorite shot, actually now officially my favorite shot of all time that I've ever done, is the Baron vomiting and flying through the air. <laughs> um, that's obviously a visual effect. You can't do that to someone. But I would say the part that I'm actually most proud of is, is something that nobody really sees, which is the, the production meetings and the visual effects meetings and the, you know, the concept meetings and even the moments on set where you, because it's so much is made up on the spot. You really have to like, you have to be quick on your feet and you have to think quickly and, and all the while having the story in your mind and having this, documentary feel in your mind you know it took us a while to learn from dj and jermaine exactly how this all works but i would say the, the part that i'm most proud of is, is how these were planned and how how well everybody collaborated it, it was such a, it was you know so exciting just to get teague fong who is like an all-star stunt coordinator just the best in toronto just to, to be able to work with him and have him come up with a bunch of ideas, everybody collaborate 
on this one idea and what can it, they all bring to the table to make this all work. That was, for me, it's the best part of the whole show. I loved it. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for talking to us about what we do in the shadows here uh, just after the finale. And we hope we uh, get to see you again in season two. Hope so, too. Thank you, Michael. All right. What a great conversation that was with DJ Stipson and Brendan Taylor. We really appreciate them coming on the podcast to talk about the process behind the scenes for this great comedy, What We Do in the Shadows. If you haven't checked it out on FX, you definitely have to give it a try. And it was just a great, uh, very educational interview for me just listening to them. And I hope it was for you as well. But that's going to wrap things up for this episode. Come back in two weeks for the next edition of the podcast, when we'll break through the fourth wall once again to talk to another creator or performer behind the entertainment that you love. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. My name is Michael R. And you can follow me at Mike Sci-Fi. Find more content at denofgeek.com and thanks for listening. Join us again next time, Beyond the Fourth Wall.